Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Today, we're going to conclude the story that I began reading to you last week by Toni Morrison. It's called Recitative one of only two short stories ever published in her lifetime. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, please do go back and listen to it. For those of you who have already listened to part one, welcome back. And let's refresh our memories about what happened last episode, shall we? So the story begins at St. Bonnie's, an orphanage where two young girls, Twyla and Roberta, have been abandoned by their very much living mothers, Twyla says they share an understanding to not ask questions, and it's simply a relief for each of them to just be and not have to explain their mothers, their mothers' absences, or the choices that their mothers have made. They leave St. Bonnie's, and they meet again at a diner in the late 1960s. Twyla is working as a waitress, and Roberta is just passing through with some friends who are on their way to meet up with Jimi Hendrix. They no longer perceive that they are on the same footing when they meet this time, and they've got additional baggage as adults. So now we pick back up a few years later. Again, check out the content advisory if you are inclined. Let's go ahead and take that deep breath. And begin. Recitative, Part 2, by Toni Morrison. James is as comfortable as a house slipper. He liked my cooking, and I liked his big, loud family. They have lived in Newburgh all of their lives and talk about it the way people do who have always known a home. His grandmother is a porch swing older than his father, and when they talk about streets and avenues and buildings, they call them names they no longer have. 
They still call the A&P Rico's because it stands on property once a mom-and-pop store owned by Mr. Rico. And they call the new community college Town Hall because it once was. My mother-in-law puts up jelly and cucumbers and buys butter wrapped in cloth from a dairy. James and his father talk about fishing and baseball, and I can see them all together on the Hudson in a raggedy skiff. Half the population of Newburgh is on welfare now, but to my husband's family, it was still some upstate paradise of a time long past. A time of ice houses and vegetable wagons, coal furnaces, and children weeding gardens. When our son was born... My mother-in-law gave me the crib blanket that had been hers. But the town they remembered had changed. Something quick was in the air. Magnificent old houses, so ruined they had become shelters for squatters and rent risks, were bought and renovated. Smart IBM people moved out of their suburbs back into the city and put shutters up and herb gardens in their backyards. A brochure came in the mail announcing the opening of a food emporium. Gourmet food, it said, and listed items the rich IBM crowd would want. It was located in a new mall at the edge of town, and I drove out to shop there one day just to see it. It was late in June, after the tulips were gone and the Queen Elizabeth roses were open everywhere. I trailed my cart along the aisle, tossing in smoked oysters and Robert's sauce, and things I knew would sit in my cupboard for years. Only when I found some Klondike ice cream bars did I feel less guilty about spending James's fireman's salary so foolishly. My father-in-law ate them with the same gusto little Joseph did. Waiting in the checkout line, I heard a voice say, Twyla! classical music piped over the aisles had affected me, and the woman leaning toward me was dressed to kill. Diamonds on her hand, a smart white summer dress. I'm Mrs. Benson, I said. Ho, ho, the big bozo, she sang. For a split second, I didn't know what she was talking about. She had a bunch of asparagus and two cartons of fancy water. Roberta! Right! For heaven's sake, Roberta! You look great, she said. So do you. Where are you? Here? In Newburgh? Yes, over in Annandale. I was opening my mouth to say more when the cashier called my attention to her empty counter. Meet you outside. Roberta pointed her finger and went into the express line. I placed the groceries and kept myself from glancing around to check Roberta's progress. I remembered Howard Johnson's and looking for a chance to speak, only to be greeted with a stingy, wow. But she was waiting for me, and her huge hair was sleek now, smooth around a small, nicely shaped head. Shoes, dress, everything, lovely and summery and rich.
I was dying to know what happened to her, how she got from Jimi Hendrix to Annandale, a neighborhood full of doctors and IBM executives. Easy, I thought. Everything is so easy for them. They think they own the world. How long? I asked her. How long have you been here? A year. I got married to a man who lives here. And you're married too, right? Benson, you said? Yeah, James Benson. And is he nice? Oh, is he nice? Well, is he? Roberta's eyes were steady as though she really meant the question and wanted an answer. He's wonderful, Roberta. Wonderful. So, you're happy? Very. That's good, she said and nodded her head. I always hoped you'd be happy. Any kids? I know you have kids. One. A boy. How about you? Four. Four? She laughed. <laughs> Stepkids. He's a widower. Oh. Got a minute? Let's have a coffee. I thought about the Klondikes melting and the inconvenience of going all the way to my car and putting the bags in the trunk. Served me right for buying all that stuff I didn't need. Roberta was ahead of me. Put them in my car. It's right here. And then I saw the dark blue limousine. You married a Chinaman? <laughs> no, she laughed. He's the driver. Oh, my. If the big bozo could see you now. We both giggled. Really giggled. Suddenly, in just a pulse beat, 20 years disappeared and all of it came rushing back. The big girls, whom we called gargirls, Roberta's misheard word for the evil stone faces described in a civics class, there, dancing in the orchard, the ploppy mashed potatoes, the double weenies, the spam with pineapple. We went into the coffee shop holding on to one another, and I tried to think why we were glad to see each other this time and not before. Once, 12 years ago, we passed like strangers. A black girl and a white girl meeting in a Howard Johnson's on the road and having nothing to say. One in a blue and white triangle waitress's hat. The other on her way to see Hendrix. Now we were behaving like sisters separated for much too long. Those four short months were nothing in time. Maybe it was the thing itself, just being there together. Two little girls who knew what nobody else in the world knew. How not to ask questions. How to believe what had to be believed. There was politeness in that reluctance. And generosity as well. Is your mother sick too? No, she dances all night. Oh, and an understanding nod. We sat in a booth by the window and fell into recollection like veterans. <laughs> Did you ever learn to read? Watch. She picked up the menu. Special of the day, cream of corn soup, entrees, two dots and a wriggly line. Quiche, chef salad, scallops. 
I was laughing and applauding when the waitress came up. Remember the Easter baskets? <laughs> and how we tried to introduce them? Your mother with that cross like two telephone poles and yours with those tight slacks? We laughed so loudly, heads turned and made the laughter harder to suppress. What happened to the Jimi Hendrix date? Roberta made a blowout sound with her lips. When he died, I thought about you. Oh, you heard about him? Finally? Finally? Come on, I was a small-town country waitress. And I was a small-town country dropout. God, were we wild. I still don't know how I got out of there alive. But you did. I did. I really did. Now I'm Mrs. Kenneth Norton. Sounds like a mouthful. It is. Servants and all. Roberta held up two fingers. Ow. What does he do? Computers and stuff. What do I know? I don't remember a hell of a lot from those days, but Lord St. Bonnie's is as clear as daylight. Remember Maggie? The day she fell down and those gargoyles laughed at her? Roberta looked up from her salad and stared at me. Maggie didn't fall, she said. Yes, she did. You remember? No, Twyla. They knocked her down. Those girls pushed her down and tore her clothes in the orchard. I don't... That's not what happened. Sure it is. In the orchard. R remember how scared we were? Wait a minute. I don't remember any of that. And Bozo was fired. You're crazy. She was there when I left. You left before me. I went back. You weren't there when they fired Bozo. What? Twice. Once for a year when I was about ten, another for two months when I was fourteen. That's when I ran away. You ran away from St. Bonnie's? I had to. What do you want? Me dancing in that orchard? Are you sure about Maggie? Of course I'm sure. You've blocked it, Twyla. It happened. Those girls had behavior problems, you know. Didn't they, though? But why can't I remember the Maggie thing? Believe me, it happened. And we were there. Who did you room with when you went back? I asked her as if I would know her. The Maggie thing was troubling me. Creeps. They tickled themselves in the night. My ears were itching, and I wanted to go home suddenly. This was all very well, but she couldn't just comb her hair, wash her face, and pretend everything was hunky-dory. After the Howard Johnson snub and no apology, nothing. Were you on dope or what that time at Howard Johnson's? I tried to make my voice sound friendlier than I felt. Maybe a little. I never did drugs much. Why? I don't know. You acted sort of like you didn't want to know me then. Oh, Twyla, you know how it was in those days, black, white. You know how everything was. 
I didn't know. I thought it was just the opposite. Busloads of blacks and whites came into Howard Johnson's together. They roamed together then. Students, musicians, lovers, protesters. You got to see everything at Howard Johnson's, and blacks were very friendly with whites in those days. But sitting there with nothing on my plate but two hard tomato wedges, wondering about the melting Klondikes, it seemed childish remembering the slight. We went to her car and, with the help of her driver, got my stuff into my station wagon. We'll keep in touch this time, she said. Sure, I said. Sure. Give me a call. I will, she said. And then just as I was sliding behind the wheel, she leaned into the window. By the way, your mother, did she ever stop dancing? I shook my head. No, never. Roberta nodded. And yours, did she ever get well? She smiled, a tiny sad smile. No, she never did. Look, call me, okay? Okay, I said, but I knew I wouldn't. Roberta had messed up my past somehow with that business about Maggie. I wouldn't forget a thing like that. Would I? With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Wayfair's biggest sale of the year is here. It's Wayday. Right now, you can score up to 80% off at Wayfair. Save on sofas and cookware, dining sets and rugs and beds, wall art, bar cards, floor lamps, sailing fans, home decor, all things outdoor, and way more. All up to 80% off right now. Plus, everything ships free. And flash deals are launching all Wayday long. Don't miss Wayfair's biggest sale of the year. Shop Wayday right now from May 6th at Wayfair.com. Wayfair, every style, every home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Now, let's get back to our story. Strife came to us that fall. At least that's what the paper called it. Strife. Racial strife. The word made me think of a bird. A big, shrieking bird out of one billion B.C., flapping its wings and cawing its eye with no lid always bearing down on you, 
All day it screeched, and at night it slept on the rooftops. It woke you in the morning, and from the Today Show to the 11 o'clock news, it kept you in awful company. I couldn't figure it out from one day to the next. I knew I was supposed to feel something strong, but I didn't know what, and James wasn't any help. Joseph was on the list of kids to be transferred from the junior high school to another one at some far out-of-the-way place, and I thought it was a good thing until I heard it was a bad thing. I mean, I didn't know. All the schools seemed dumps to me, and the fact that one was nicer looking didn't hold much weight. But the papers were full of it, and then the kids began to get jumpy. In August, mind you, schools weren't even open yet. I thought Joseph might be frightened to go over there, but he didn't seem scared. So I forgot about it. Until I found myself driving along Hudson Street, out there by the school they were trying to integrate, and saw a line of women marching. And who do you suppose was in line, big as life, holding a sign in front of her bigger than her mother's cross? Mothers have rights too. It said. I drove on and then changed my mind. I circled the block, slowed down, and honked my horn. Roberta looked over, and when she saw me, she waved. I didn't wave back, but I didn't move either. She handed her sign to another woman and came over to where I was parked. Hi. What are you doing? Picketing? What's it look like? What for? What do you mean, what for? They want to take my kids and send them out of the neighborhood. They don't want to go. So what if they go to another school? My boy's being bused too, and I don't mind. Why should you? It's not about us, Twyla. Me and you. It's about our kids. What's more us than that? Well, it's a free country. Not yet, but it will be. What the hell does that mean? I'm not doing anything to you. You really think that? I know it. I wonder what made me think you were different. I wonder what made me think you were different. Look at them, I said. Just look. Who do they think they are? swarming all over the place like they own it. And now they think they can decide where my child goes to school? Look at them, Roberta. They're bozos. Roberta turned around and looked at the women. Almost all of them were standing still now, waiting. Some were even edging toward us. Roberta looked at me out of some refrigerator behind her eyes. No, they're not. They're just... Mothers. And what am I? Swiss cheese? I used to curl your hair. I hated your hands in my hair. The women were moving. Our faces looked mean to them, of course, and they looked as though they could not wait to throw themselves in front of a police car, or better yet, into my car and drag me away by my ankles. Now they surrounded my car and gently, gently began to rock it. I swayed back and forth like a sideways yo-yo. 
automatically I reached for Roberta, like the old days in the orchard when they saw us watching them and we had to get out of there. And if one of us fell, the other pulled her up. And if one of us was caught, the other stayed to kick and scratch, and neither would leave the other behind. My arm shot out of the car window, but no receiving hand was there. Roberta was looking at me sway from side to side in the car, and her face was still. My purse slid from the car seat down under the dashboard. The four policemen who had been drinking tab in their car finally got the message and strolled over, forcing their way through the women. Quietly, firmly, they spoke. Okay, ladies, back in line, we're off the streets. Some of them went away willingly. Others had to be urged away from the car doors and the hood. Roberta didn't move. She was looking steadily at me. I was fumbling to turn on the ignition, which wouldn't catch because the gear shift was still in drive. The seats of the car were a mess because the swaying had thrown my grocery coupons all over it, and my purse was sprawled on the floor. Maybe I am different now, Twyla. But you're not. You're the same little state kid who kicked a poor old black lady when she was down on the ground. You kicked a black lady and you have the nerve to call me a bigot? The coupons were everywhere and the guts of my purse were bunched under the dashboard. What was she saying? Black? Maggie wasn't black. She wasn't black, I said. Like hell she wasn't. And you kicked her. We both did. You kicked a black lady who couldn't even scream. Liar. You're the liar. Why don't you just go on home and leave us alone, huh? She turned away and I skidded away from the curb. The next morning, I went into the garage and cut the side out of the carton our portable TV had come in. It wasn't nearly big enough. But after a while, I had a decent sign. Red, spray-painted letters on a white background. And so do children. I meant just to go down to the school and tack it up somewhere so those cows on the picket line across the street could see it. But when I got there, some ten or so others had already assembled, protesting the cows across the street. Police permits and everything. I got in line, and we strutted in time on our side while Roberta's group strutted on theirs. That first day, we were all dignified, pretending the other side didn't exist. The second day, there was name-calling and finger gestures, but that was about all. People changed signs from time to time, but Roberta never did, and neither did I. Actually, my sign didn't make sense without Roberta's. And so do children what? One of the women on my side asked me. Have rights, I said, as though it was obvious. Roberta didn't acknowledge my presence in any way, and I got to thinking maybe she didn't know I was there. I began to pace myself in the line, jostling people one minute and lagging behind the next so Roberta and I could reach the end of our respective lines at the same time, and there would be a moment in our turn when we would face each other. Still, I couldn't tell whether she saw me and knew my sign was for her, 
The next day, I went early, before we were scheduled to assemble. I waited until she got there before I exposed my new creation. As soon as she hoisted her mother's have rights too, I began to wave my new one, which said, How would you know? I know she saw that one, but I had gotten addicted now. My signs got crazier each day, and the women on my side decided that I was a kook. They couldn't make heads or tails out of my brilliant, screaming posters. I brought a painted sign in queenly red with huge black letters that said, Is your mother well? Roberta took her lunch break and didn't come back for the rest of the day, or any day after. Two days later, I stopped going too and couldn't have been missed because nobody understood my signs anyway. It was a nasty six weeks. Classes were suspended, and Joseph didn't go to anybody's school until October. The children, everybody's children, soon got bored with that extended vacation they thought was going to be so great. They looked at TV until their eyes flattened. I spent a couple of mornings tutoring my son as the other mother said we should. Twice I opened a text from last year that he had never turned in. Twice he yawned in my face. Other mothers organized living room sessions so the kids could keep up. None of the kids could concentrate, so they drifted back to the prices right in the Brady Bunch. When the school finally opened, there were fights once or twice, and some sirens roared through the streets every once in a while. There were a lot of photographers from Albany, and just when ABC was about to send up a news crew, the kids settled down like nothing in the world had happened. Joseph hung my how-would-you-know sign in his bedroom. I don't know what became of and so do children. I think my father-in-law cleaned some fish on it. He was always puttering around in our garage. Each of his five children lived in Newburgh, and he acted as though he had five extra homes. I couldn't help looking for Roberta when Joseph graduated from high school, but I didn't see her. It didn't trouble me much what she had said to me in the car. I mean, the kicking part. I know I didn't do that. I couldn't do that, but... I was puzzled by her telling me Maggie was black. When I thought about it, I actually couldn't be certain. She wasn't pitch black, I knew, or I would have remembered that. What I remember was the kitty hat and the semicircle legs. I tried to reassure myself about the race thing for a long time until it dawned on me that the truth was already there. And Roberta knew it. I didn't kick her. I didn't join in with the gargirls and kick that lady. But I sure did want to. We watched and never tried to help her and never called for help. Maggie was my dancing mother. Deaf, I thought. And dumb. Nobody inside. Nobody who would hear you if you cried in the night. Nobody who could tell you anything important that you could use. Rocking, dancing, swaying as she walked. 
And when the gargirls pushed her down and started roughhousing, I knew she wouldn't scream. Couldn't. Just like me. And I was glad about that. We decided not to have a tree because Christmas would be at my mother-in-law's house. So why have a tree at both places? Joseph was at SUNY New Paltz, and we had to economize, we said. But at the last minute, I changed my mind. Nothing could be that bad, so I rushed around town looking for a tree, something small but wide. By the time I found a place, it was snowing and very late. I dawdled like it was the most important purchase in the world, and the tree man was fed up with me. Finally, I chose one and had it tied onto the trunk of the car. I drove away slowly because the sand trucks were not out yet, and the streets could be murder at the beginning of a snowfall. Downtown, the streets were wide and rather empty, except for a cluster of people coming out of the Newburgh Hotel, the one hotel in town that wasn't built out of cardboard and plexiglass. A party, probably. The men huddled in the snow were dressed in tails, and the women had on furs. Shiny things glittered from underneath their coats. It made me tired to look at them. Tired, tired, tired. On the next corner was a small diner with loops and loops of paper bells in the window. I stopped the car and went in, just for a cup of coffee and twenty minutes of peace, before I went home and tried to finish everything before Christmas Eve. Twyla? There she was, in a silvery evening gown and dark fur coat. A man and another woman were with her, the man fumbling for change to put in the cigarette machine. The woman was humming and tapping the counter with her fingernails. They all looked a little bit drunk. Well, it's you. How are you? I shrugged. Pretty good. Frazzled. Christmas and all. Regular? Called the woman from the counter. Fine! Roberta called back and then, Wait for me in the car. She slipped into the booth beside me. I have to tell you something, Twyla. I made up my mind if I ever saw you again, I'd tell you. I'd just as soon not hear anything, Roberta. It doesn't matter now anyway. No, she said, not about that. Don't be long, said the woman. She carried two regulars to go, and the man peeled his cigarette pack as they left. It's about St. Bonnie's. And Maggie. Oh, please, listen to me. I really did think she was black. I didn't make that up. I really thought so. But now, I can't be sure. I just remember her as old, so old. And because she couldn't talk, well, you know, I thought she was crazy. She'd been brought up in an institution like my mother was, and like I thought I would be too. And you were right. We didn't kick her. 
It was the gargoyles, only them. But, well, I wanted to. I really wanted them to hurt her. I said we did it to you and me, but that's not true. And I don't want you to carry that around. It was just that I wanted to do it so bad that day. Wanting to is doing it. Her eyes were watery from the drinks she'd had, I guess. I know it's that way with me. One glass of wine and I start bawling over the littlest thing. We were kids, Roberta. Yeah, yeah, I know. Just kids. Eight. Eight. And lonely. Scared, too. She wiped her cheeks with the heel of her hand and smiled. Well, that's uh, all I wanted to say. I nodded and couldn't think of any way to fill the silence that went from the diner past the paper bells on out into the snow. It was heavy now. I thought I'd better wait for the sand trucks before starting home. Thanks, Roberta. Sure. Did I tell you my mother? She never did stop dancing. Yes, you told me. And mine? She never got well. Roberta lifted her hands from the tabletop and covered her face with her palms. When she took them away, she really was crying. Oh, shit, Twyla. Shit, shit, shit. What the hell happened to Maggie? So, (laughs) there is so much (laughs) that I want to say about this story. First of all, the race question. Okay, so remember that this is an experiment by Toni Morrison. This was, um, well, in her words, it was a story that was written without clues or cues even as to the race of the protagonists. And what I realized reading it through once or twice was that I had already made certain decisions about the characters based on my own social conditioning. I recognized that it was impossible for me to read this story without filling in the cues and clues as to which race each girl was. My conditioning informed me automatically that it was Twyla who was the black girl because her mother was dancing all night, hooking or stripping. And and that 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 was a thought that I had that I was conditioned to think because of being 
a black person raised in normative white culture and being fed the idea that that as the other blacks were inferior and of a lower mind and morals and that my automatic assumption that Roberta was white was reinforced when her mother was described as wearing a cross. And even in my mind, I swear to you, I pictured this woman dressed in all white. And the idea that white and Jesus and Christianity and all things good, even though damaged, represented white normative culture. We are all of us conditioned. We all have inherent and oftentimes hidden biases, and those are informed by the culture in which we are raised and the values with which we are inculcated now. (sighs) Toni Morrison is a genius. You know, I believe that at the very core of my being. She is a genius. And the more I read this story, the more questions I have, not just about what happened to those girls back then, but I I really believe that Tony also meant this to be an exercise in examining memory and how inaccurate it can be, how our memories are shaped by so many factors, by the emotional state that we're in when those memories are formed and forged. The memories that we have as children take on this really important resonance. And over time, they have this sort of (sighs) faded patina in our minds and in our hearts. And, and, And we believe those memories to be infallible, but our memories are not so reliable, science is telling us. But what gets me most about this story is the the changing dynamic between these two girls and then women and how the circumstances of their lives shape each moment that they come together. They, they, they find each other at different times on their independent journeys. And although they are bound by the same experience at St. Bonnie's, Everything that's happened to them since the last time they met colors the entire tone and tenor of of that meeting. They both become married women. They both have children. and, And the conflicts that were basically absent for them during that four months at St. Bonnie's rear their ugly heads when they're outside of that closed environment, outside of that home and out in the real world. Out in the real world, the real world impinges and it changes how they relate to one another. And that's the, that's to me, that's that's the tragedy of the story. I want so much for that innocence that they had as young girls. I want that, of course, I want that to be present throughout the whole of their lives. That's my fantasy. The way we think things should turn out is hardly ever the way they actually do. In any case, um, 
Toni Morrison, boy. She was a master, and I am so, so happy to have been able to share a Toni Morrison story with you on the podcast. Um, as I've said before, literary lioness and the likes of her will hardly pass this way again. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith, the best in the business, with help from New York's own Harry Huggins and Renee Colvert out of L.A., one of my favorite humans on the planet. Our editing and sound design by Brendan Burns, who knew the kid was so, so talented. I want to express here my undying thanks to the estate of Toni Morrison for allowing me to read this story. Please go find more of her work. I guarantee you, you won't regret it. There's tons of fiction to explore, or you could begin with Goodness and the Literary Imagination, one of her nonfiction works, which includes a lecture by and interview with Ms. Morrison. And here's an idea. If you like listening to the show, recommend an episode to a friend who you think might enjoy it. And as always, you are welcome to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And why not include a story suggestion for us? We read them, we use them, we love them. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. But if you don't want to wait that long, you don't have to. You can get next week's episode plus exclusive bonus interviews on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one week early and ad-free. So go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar, or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Media. Our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and yours truly, LeVar Burton. I am LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, and check out my latest series called This Is My Story on my Twitter feed and on YouTube. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 